Welcome to the Drabblecast, episode 324. The Drabblecast is a weekly audio fiction magazine that brings strange stories by strange authors to strange listeners, such as yourself. I'm your host, Norm Sherman. This week on the show, Child's Play. Certainly, one of the best parts of being a kid, assuming you aren't sitting by some slow-moving belt putting together toys for other kids across the world, is being constantly hooked in with access to the unbridled power of your imagination. Remember when you were just a kid, playing hide-and-go-seek with your dad and then never seeing him again for some twenty-odd years when he finally decided to come moseying back into town, just a shell of a man, sweat and dried mustard stains coloring his t-shirt, another strange family staring back at you through the dirty rolled-up windows of his station wagon and an emptiness in his eyes that says, I have traversed the realm of shadow and am ready to end this blistering lonely existence. Gee willikers, Pop was the best at that game, huh? Remember playing house with the neighborhood kids till their real house burnt down in that gas fire and their youngest, Sarah, got to wear that cool mummy costume and lay in bed for months perfectly still? We always forgot to change that smoke alarm battery when we played house too. What about laying in the snow with a boner when you were a kid, making snow girlfriends? What, just me? Yeah, right. Aside from the kid who must have gotten cut from the team in Air Bud to make room on the roster for a dog, all kids love to play games. Until you start getting older, and games start to be about something else, start to suck. You get too drunk playing Risk, and when your buddy turns in a big set and starts wiping out your stronghold in South America, you flip over the board and tell everyone to get the hell out of your house cause fuck Steve, he swore he wouldn't attack from North Africa, that bastard. And speaking of world takeovers, you might have noticed that McDonald's has recently started up its ongoing Monopoly game again, a title I find curious that a massive, ruthless, multinational corporation would ever obsess over. I mean, whatever could they see in it? <laughs> Monopoly. Maybe they just like playing as the thimble. Real Monopoly offers young children an opportunity to be introduced to basic economic principles of investment and risk management, saving and spending. McDonald's Monopoly offers them a one in four chance of either winning a prize, a lifetime struggle with obesity, or uncontrollable diarrhea. This week on the show, we traverse the realm of shadow, just like dear old dad, past the ravaged war-torn banks of North Africa, across the rarely seen because it's invisible land bridge into the fertile lands and two-point army bonuses of Brazil. We dive recklessly into that deep, sweaty pit of balls, the ones that kids like to play in, the pungent, sweat-slick tub of balls that kids so very much like to play in, to take you to the very edge of imagination, where reality meets the fantastic where the game dissolves all around us because the rules no longer apply. But first, let's hit a hundred word story. This week's Drabble is called The Habit Troll by longtime Drabblecast fan, Foramite, and frequent contributor to the show, Eric Marsh. Before I start this one, I should mention a bit of terminology you may or may not be familiar with, because I didn't know what these things were called. 
You know those modular structures that kids play around in at places like McDonald's and such, with connecting translucent tubes, little rooms, and slides? Those are called habit trails, named after the products that are basically the exact same things for little mice, rats, and small animals. Those interconnectable-type terrariums that simulate the underground warrens and habitats those little critters love crawl around in. So if you don't know, now you know, hamster. Anyways, here's Eric's Drabble. While Dawn waited in line, Patrick tugged at his sleeve. Daddy, Daddy, can I play on the habit trail? He asked. The McDonald's playscape was surrounded by a red and yellow safety fence. Sure, son, Dawn said. Just watch out for the habit troll. The habit troll? The boy stared at his father. Just kidding. Go on, son. I'll call you when dinner's ready. Five minutes passed before Don called out the restaurant door. Patrick, let's eat. The silence was interrupted by brief, furious scrambling, like claws seeking purchase on slick plastic. Don hesitated, then started into the playscape. Patrick, he called. Son? You're not a true parent until you've crawled through the tight, urine-spattered walls of a McDonald's plastic playhouse in order to retrieve the tattered remains of your child. And that leads us to our feature story. We bring you The Ballroom by China Mieville, co-written by Emma Burcham and Max Schaefer. Emma Burcham is the author of Anti-Capitalism, A Guide to the Movement, and is at work featured in the year's best fantasy and horror, 19th edition, edited by Ellen Datlow, and elsewhere. Max Schaefer was born in London and studied in Cambridge and Harvard. His first novel, Children of the Sun, came out in 2011 from Granta Books. And China Mieville also lives and works in London. His novel, Perdido Street Station, won the 1998 Arthur C. Clarke Award and the British Fantasy Award, followed in 2000 by The Scar, which also took the British Fantasy Award, and Iron Council in 2004, which again won the Arthur C. Clarke. Mayville has other works that have been nominated and received awards, including The City and The City in 2009, Kraken 2010, and his most recent Rail Sea 2012. This story first appeared in his short story anthology Looking for Jake by Delray Books. The story is expertly read to you by the one and only Graham Dunlop. You've heard Graham on the Drabblecast several times before, and you no doubt remember his fantastic technique as a storyteller. He did the Lovecrafty Moby Dick story we ran last year, I Only Am Escaped Alone to Tell Thee, the cryptozoological bat monster Samantha Henderson story, Garcane, and of course, Wells Towers' uber-violent yet somehow quite funny Viking story, Everything Ravaged, Everything Burned. Graham reads and hosts the young adult fiction podcast, Cast of Wonders, which is very well put together. You should go check them out if you're looking for more story podcasts. It's well worth your time. So, without further ado, we bring you The Ballroom by China Mieville, Emma Burcham, and Max Schaefer.
I'm not employed by the store. They don't pay my wages. I'm with a security firm, but we've had a contract here for a long time, and I've been here for most of it. This is where I know people. I've been a guard in other places, still am occasionally on short notice, and until recently I would have said this was the best place I'd been. It's nice to work somewhere people are happy to go. Until recently, if anyone asked me what I did for a living, I'd just tell them I worked for the store. It's on the outskirts of town, a huge metal warehouse, full of a hundred little fake rooms with a single path running through them, and all the furniture we sell made up and laid out so you can see how it should look. Then the same products disassembled, packed flat and stacked high in the warehouse for people to buy. They're cheap. Mostly, I know I'm just there for show. I wander around in my uniform, hands behind my back, making people feel safe, making the merchandise feel protected. It's not really the kind of stuff you can shoplift. I almost never have to intervene. The last time I did was in the ballroom. On weekends, this place is just crazy. So full it's hard to walk, all couples and young families. We try to make things easier for people. We have a cheap cafe and free parking, and most important of all, we have a crèche. It's at the top of the stairs when you first come in, and right next to it, opening out from it, is the ballroom. The walls of the ballroom are almost all glass, so people in the store can look inside. All the shoppers love watching the children. There are always people outside staring in with big dumb smiles. I keep an eye on the ones that don't look like parents. It's not very big, the ballroom, just an annex really. It's been here for years. There's a climbing frame all knotted up around itself and a net made of rope to catch you and a Wendy house and pictures on the walls. It's full of colour. The whole room is two feet deep in shiny plastic balls. When the children fall, the balls cushion them. The balls come up to their waists so they wade through the room like people in a flood. The children scoop up the balls and splash them all over each other. They're about the size of tennis balls, hollow and light so they can't hurt. They make little putter-thudder noises bouncing off the walls and the kids' heads, making them laugh. I don't know why they laugh so hard. I don't know what it is about the balls that makes it so much better than a normal playroom, but they love it in there. Only six of them are allowed at a time, and they queue up for ages to get in. They get 20 minutes inside. You can see they'd give anything to stay longer. Sometimes when it's time to go, they howl, and the friends they've made cry too at the sight of them leaving. I was on my break reading when I was called to the ballroom. I could hear shouting and crying from around the corner, and as I turned it, I saw a crowd of people outside the big window. A man was clutching his son and yelling at the childcare assistant and the store manager. The little boy was about five, only just old enough to go in. He was clinging to his dad's trouser leg, sobbing. The assistant, Sandra, was trying not to cry. She's only 19 herself. The man was shouting that she couldn't do a bloody job, that there were way too many kids in the place and they were completely out of control. He was very worked up and he was gesticulating exaggeratedly, like in a silent movie. If his son hadn't anchored his leg, he would have been pacing around. The manager was trying to hold her ground without being confrontational. 
I moved in behind her in case it got nasty, but she was calming the man down. She's good at her job. Sir, as I said, we emptied the room as soon as your son was hurt, and we've had words with the other children. You don't even know which one did it. If you've been keeping an eye on them, which I imagine is your bloody job, then you might be a bit less sodding ineffectual. That seemed to bring him to a halt, and he quieted down, finally, as did his son, who was looking up at him with a confused kind of respect. The manager told him how sorry she was, and offered his son an ice cream. Things were easing down, but as I started to leave, I saw Sandra crying. The man looked a bit guilty and tried to apologise to her, but she was too upset to respond. The boy had been playing behind the climbing frame, in the corner by the Wendy house, Sandra told me later. He was burrowing down into the balls till he was totally covered, the way some children like to. Sandra kept an eye on the boy, but she could see the balls bouncing as he moved, so she knew he was okay, until he came lurching up, screaming. The store's full of children. The little ones, the toddlers, spend their time in the main crèche. The older ones, eight or nine or ten, they normally walk around the stall with their parents, choosing their own bedclothes or curtains or a little desk with drawers or whatever. But if they're in between, they come back for the ballroom. They're so funny, moving over the climbing frame, concentrating hard, laughing all the time. They make each other cry, of course, but usually they stop in seconds. It always gets me how they do that, bawling, then suddenly get distracted and running off happily. Sometimes they play in groups, but it seems like there's always one who's alone. Quite content, pouring balls onto balls, dropping them through the holes of the climbing frame, dipping into them like a duck. Happy, but playing alone. Sandra left. It was nearly two weeks after that argument, but she was still upset. I couldn't believe it. I started talking to her about it, and I could see her fill up again. I was trying to say the man had been out of line, that it wasn't her fault, but she wouldn't listen. It wasn't him, she said. You don't understand. I can't be in there anymore. I felt sorry for her, but she was overreacting. It was out of all proportion. She told me that since the day that little boy got upset, she couldn't relax in the ballroom at all. She kept trying to watch all the children at once, all the time. She became obsessed with double-checking the numbers. It always seems like there's too many, she said. I count them and there's six, and I count them again and there's six, but it always seems there's too many. Maybe she could have asked to stay on and only done duty in the main crash, managing name tags, checking the kids in and out, changing the tapes in the video but she didn't even want to do that. Children loved that ballroom. They went on and on about it, she said. They would never have stopped badgering her to be let in. They're little kids and sometimes they have accidents. When that happens, someone has to shovel all the balls aside to clean the floor, then dunk the balls themselves in water with a bit of bleach. This was a bad time for that. Almost every day, some kid or other seemed to pee themselves, we kept having to empty the room to sort out little puddles. I had every bloody one of them over playing with me every second just so we'd have no problems, one of the nursery workers told me. Then after they left, you could smell it, right by the bloody Wendy house where I'd sworn none of the little buggers had got to. His name was Matthew. He left a month after Sandra. I was amazed. I mean, you can see how much they love the children, people like them even having to wipe up dribble and sick and all that. Seeing them go was proof of what a tough job it was. 
Matthew looked really sick by the time he quit, really grey. I asked him what was up, but he couldn't tell me. I'm not sure he even knew. You have to watch those kids all the time. I couldn't do that job, couldn't take the stress. The children are so unruly and so tiny. I'd be terrified all the time of losing them, of, of hurting them. There was a bad mood to the place after that. We'd lost two people. The main store turns over staff like a motor, of course, but the creche normally does a bit better. You have to be qualified to work in the creche or the ballroom. The departures felt like a bad sign. I was conscious of wanting to look after the kids in the store. When I did my walks, I felt like they were all around me. I felt like I had to be ready to leap in and save them any moment. Everywhere I looked, I saw children. And they were as happy as ever, running through the fake rooms and jumping on the bunk beds, sitting at the desks that had been laid out ready. But now the way they ran around made me wince, and all of our furniture, which meets or exceeds the most rigorous international standards for safety, looked like it was lying in wait to injure them. I saw head wounds in every coffee table corner, burns in every lamp. I went past the ballroom more than usual. Inside was always some harassed-looking young woman or man trying to herd the children and then running them through a tide of bright plastic that thudded every way as they dived into the Wendy house and piled up balls on its roof. The children would spin around to make themselves dizzy, laughing. It wasn't good for them. They loved it when they were in there, but they emerged so tired and crotchety and teary. They did that droning children's cry. They pulled themselves into their parents' jumpers, sobbing when it was time to go. They didn't want to leave their friends. Some children were coming back week after week. It seemed to me their parents ran out of things to buy. After a while, they'd make some token purchase like tea lights and just sit in the cafe drinking tea and staring out of the window at the grey flyovers while their kids got their dose of the room. They didn't look like much that was happy to these visits. The mood infected us. There wasn't a good feeling in the store. Some people said it was too much trouble and we should close the ballroom, but the management made it clear that would not happen. You can't avoid night shifts. There were three of us on that night and we took different sections. Periodically we'd each of us wander through our patch and between times we'd sit together in the staff room or the unlit cafe and chat and play cards with all sorts of rubbish flashing on the mute TV. My route took me outside into the front car lot, flashing my torch up and down the tarmac, the giant store behind me with shrubbery around it black and whispery, and beyond the barriers the roads and night cars moving away from me. Inside again and through bedrooms, past all the pine frames and the fake walls. It was dim, half lights in all the big chambers full of beds never slept in and sinks without plumbing. I could stand still and there was nothing, no movement and no noise. One time I made arrangements with the other guards on duty and I brought my girlfriend to the store. We wandered hand in hand through all the pretend rooms like stage sets, trailing torchlight. We played house like children, acting out little moments. Her stepping out of the shower to my proffered towel, dividing the paper at the breakfast bar. Then we found the biggest and most expensive bed with a special mattress that you can see nearby cut and cross section. After a while she told me to stop. 
I asked her what the matter was, but she seemed angry and wouldn't say. I led her out through the locked doors with my swipe card and walked her to her car, alone in the lot, and I watched her drive away. There's a long one-way system of ramps and roundabouts to leave the store, which she followed unnecessarily, so it took a long time before she was gone. We don't see each other anymore. In the warehouse, I walked between metal shelf units 30 feet high. My footsteps sounded to me like a prison guard's. I imagined the flat-packed furniture assembling itself around me. I came back through kitchens, following the path towards the cafe, up the stairs into the unlit hallway. My mates weren't back. There was no light shining off the big window that fronted the silent ballroom. It was absolutely dark. I put my face up close to the glass and stared at the black shape I knew was the climbing frame. The Wendy house, a little square of paler shadow, was adrift in plastic balls. I turned on my torch and shone it into the room. Where the beam touched them, the balls leapt into clown colours, and then the light moved away and they went back to being black. In the main crèche, I sat on the assistant's chair with a little half-circle of baby chairs in front of me. I sat like that in the dark and listened to no noise. There was a little bit of lamplight, orangey through the windows, and once every few seconds a car would pass, just audible, way out on the other side of the parking lot. I picked up the book by the side of the chair and opened it in torchlight. Fairy tales, Sleeping Beauty, Cinderella. There was a sound, a little soft thump. I heard it again, balls in the ballroom falling onto each other. I was standing instantly, staring through the glass into the darkness of the ballroom. Putter-thudder, it came again. It took me seconds to move, but I came close up to the window with my torch raised. I was holding my breath and my skin felt too tight. My torch beam swayed over the climbing frame and out the window on the other side, sending shadows into the corridors. I directed it down into those bouncy balls, and just before the beam hit them, while they were still in darkness, they shivered and slid away from each other in a tiny little trail, as if something was burrowing underneath. My teeth were clenched. The light was on the balls now, and nothing was moving. I kept that little room lit for a long time, until the torchlight stopped trembling. I moved it carefully up and down the walls, over every part, until I let out a big dumb hiss of relief because I saw that there were balls on top of the climbing frame right on its edge and I realised that one or two of them must have fallen off, bouncing softly among the others. I shook my head and my hand swung down, the torchlight going with it, and the ballroom went back into darkness. And as it did, in the moment when the shadows rushed back in, I felt a brutal cold and I stared at the little girl in the Wendy house and she stared at me. The other two guys couldn't calm me down. They found me in the ballroom yelling for help. I'd opened both doors and I was hurling balls out into the creche and the corridors where they rolled and bounced in all directions, down the stairs to the entrance under the tables in the cafe. At first I'd forced myself to be slow. I knew that the most important thing was not to scare the girl any more than she must have been already. I'd croaked out some daft, would-be cheerful greeting, come inside, shining the torch gradually towards the Wendy house so I wouldn't dazzle her, and I'd kept talking, whatever nonsense I could muster. When I realised she'd sunk down again beneath the balls, I became all jokey, trying to pretend we were playing hide-and-seek. 
I was horribly aware of how I might seem to her with my build and my uniform and my accent. But when I got to the Wendy house, there was nothing there. She's been left behind, I kept screaming. And when they understood, they dived in with me and scooped up handfuls of the balls and threw them aside. But the two of them stopped long before me. When I turned to throw more of the balls away, I realised they were just watching me. They wouldn't believe she'd been in there or that she'd got out. They told me they would have seen her, that she'd have had to come past them. They kept telling me I was being crazy, but they didn't try to stop me. And eventually I cleared the room of all the balls while they stood and waited for the police I'd made them call. The ballroom was empty. There was a damp patch under the Wendy house, which the assistants must have missed. For a few days I was in no state to come into work. I was fevered. I kept thinking about her. I'd only seen her for a moment till the darkness covered her. She was five or six years old. She looked washed out, grubby and bleached of colour and cold as if I saw her through water. She wore a stained t-shirt with the picture of a cartoon princess on it. She'd stared at me with her eyes wide, her face clamped shut. Her grey, fat little fingers had gripped the edge of the Wendy house. The police had found no one. They'd helped us clear up the balls and put them back in the ballroom, and then they'd taken me home. I can't stop wondering if it would have made any difference to how things turned out if anyone had believed me. I can't see how it would. When I came back to work days later, everything had already happened. After you've been in this job a while, there are two kinds of situations you dread. The first one is when you arrive to find a mass of people, tense and excited, arguing and yelling and trying to push each other out of the way and calm each other down. You can't see past them, but you know they're reacting ineptly to something bad. The second one is when there's a crowd of people you can't see past, but they're hardly moving and nearly silent. That's rarer and invariably worse. The woman and her daughter had already been taken away, I saw the whole thing later on security tape. It had been the little girl's second time in the ballroom in a matter of hours. Like the first time she'd sat alone, perfectly happy, singing and talking to herself. Her minutes were up, her mother had loaded her new garden furniture into the car and come to take her home. She knocked on the glass and smiled, and the little girl had waited over happily enough until she realised that she was being summoned. On the tape, you can see her whole body language change. She starts sulking and moaning, then suddenly turns and runs back to the Wendy house, plonking herself among the balls. Her mother looks fairly patient, standing at the door and calling for her while the assistant stands with her. You can see them chatting. The little girl sits by herself, talking into the empty doorway of the Wendy house, with her back to the adults, playing some obstinate, solitary final game. The other kids carry on doing their thing. Some are watching to see what happens. Eventually her mother yells at her to come. The girl stands and turns round, facing her across the sea of balls. She has one in each hand, her arms hanging down by her sides, and she brings them up and stares at them and at her mother. I won't, she's saying, I heard later. I want to stay. We're playing. She backs into the Wendy house. Her mother strides over to her and bends in the doorway for a moment. She has to get down on all fours to get inside. Her feet stick out. There's no sound on the tape. 
It's when you see all the children jerk and the assistant run that you know the woman has started to scream. The assistant later told me that when she tried to rush forward, it seemed as if she couldn't get through the balls, as if they'd become heavy. The children were all getting in her way. It was bizarrely, stupidly difficult to cross the few feet to the Wendy house with other adults in her wake. They couldn't get the mother out of the way, so between them they lifted the house into the air over her, tearing its toy walls apart. The child was choking. Of course, of course, the balls are designed to be too big for anything like this to happen. But somehow she'd shoved one far inside her mouth. It should have been impossible. It was too far, wedged too hard to prise out. The little girl's eyes were huge and her feet and knees kept turning inward towards each other. You see her mother lift her up and beat her upon the back very hard. The children are lined against the wall watching. One of the men manages to get the mother aside and raises the girl for the Heimlich maneuver. You can't see her face too clearly on the tape, but you can tell that it's very dark now, the colour of a bruise, and her head is lolling. Just as he has his arms about her, something happens at the man's feet and he slips on the ball, still hugging her to him. They sink together. They got the children into another room. Word went through the store, of course, and all the absent parents came running. When the first arrived, she found the man who had intervened screaming at the children while the assistant tried desperately to quiet him. He was demanding they tell him where the other little girl was who'd come close and chattered to him as he tried to help, who'd been getting in his way. That's one of the reasons we had to keep going over the tape to see where this girl had come from and gone. But there was no sign of her. Of course, I tried to get transferred, but it wasn't a good time in the industry, or in any industry. It was made pretty clear to me that the best way of holding onto my job was to stay put. The ballroom was closed, initially during the inquest, then for renovation, and then for longer while discussions went on about its future. The closure became unofficially indefinite, and then officially so. Those adults who knew what had happened and it always surprised me how few did, strode past the room with their toddlers strapped into pushchairs and their eyes grimly on the showroom trail, but their children still missed the room. You could see it when they came up the stairs with their parents. They'd think they were going to the ballroom and they'd start talking about it and shouting about the climbing frame and the colours, and when they realised it was closed, the big window covered in brown paper, there were always tears. Like most adults, I turned the locked-up room into a blind spot. Even on night shifts, when it was still marked on my route, I'd turn away. It was sealed up, so why would I check it? Particularly when it still felt so terrible in there, a bad atmosphere as tenacious as stink. There are little card swipe units we have to use to show that we've covered each area, and I'd do the one by the ballroom door without looking, staring at the stacks of new catalogues at the top of the stairs. Sometimes I'd imagine I could hear noises behind me, soft little putter thudders, but I knew it was impossible, so there was no point even checking. It was strange to think of the ballroom closed for good, to think that those were the last kids who'd ever get to play there. One day I was offered a big bonus to stay on late. The store manager introduced me to Mr Gainsbourg from head office. It turned out she didn't just mean the UK operation, but the corporate parent. Mr Gainsbourg wanted to work late in the store that night and he needed someone to look after him. 
He didn't reappear until well past 11, just as I was beginning to assume that he'd given in the jet lag and I was in for an easy night. He was tanned and well-dressed. He kept using my Christian name while he lectured me about the company. A couple of times I wanted to tell him what my profession had been where I come from, but I could see he wasn't trying to patronise me. In any case, I needed the job. He asked me to take him to the ballroom. Got to sort out problems as early as you can, he said. It's the number one thing I've learned, John, and I've been doing this a while. One problem will always create another. If you leave one little thing, think you can just ride it out, then before you know it you've got two, and so on. You've been here a while, right, John? You saw this place before it closed. These crazy little rooms are a fantastic hit with the kids. We have them in all our stores now. You'd think it would be an extra, right? A nice to have. But I tell you, John, kids love these places, and kids... Well, kids are really, really important to this company. The doors were propped open by now, and he had me help him carry a portable desk from the show floor into the ballroom. Kids make us, John. Nearly 40% of our customers have young children, and most of those cite the kid-friendliness of our stores as one of the top two or three reasons they come here. Above quality of product, above price. You drive here, you eat, it's a day out for the family. Okay, so that's one thing. Plus, it turns out that people who are shopping for their kids are much more aware of issues like safety and quality. They spend way more per item on average than singles and childless couples because they want to know they've done the best for their kids. And our margins on the big-ticket items are way healthier than on entry-level product. Even low-income couples, John, the proportion of their income that goes on furniture and household goods just rockets up at pregnancy. He was looking around him at the balls, bright in the ceiling lights that hadn't been on for months, at the ruined skeleton of the Wendy house. So what's the first thing we look at when a store begins to go wrong? The facilities, the creche, the childcare. Okay, tick. But the results here have been badly off-kilter recently. All the stores have shown a dip, of course, but this one, I don't know if you've noticed, it's not just revenues are down, but traffic has sunk in a way that's completely out of line. Usually, traffic is actually surprisingly resilient in a downturn. People buy less, but they keep coming. Sometimes, John, we even see numbers go up. But here, visits are down overall. Proportionally, traffic from couples with children is down even more. And repeat traffic from couples with children has dropped through the floor. That's what's unusual with this store. So why aren't they coming back as often? What's different here? What's changed? He gave a little smile and looked ostentatiously around, then back at me. Okay? Parents can still leave their kids in the creche, but the kids aren't asking their parents for repeat visits like they used to. Something's missing. Ergo, therefore, we need it to back. He laid his briefcase on the desk and gave me a wry smile. You know how it is. You tell them and tell them to fix things as they happen, but do they listen? Because it isn't them who have to patch it up, right? So then you end up with not one problem, but two, twice as much trouble to bring under control. He shook his head ruefully. He was looking around the room into all the corners, narrowing his eyes. He took a couple of deep breaths. 
Okay, John. Listen, thanks for all your help. I'm going to need a few minutes here. Why don't you go watch some TV, get yourself a coffee or something. I'll come find you in a while. I told him I'd be in the staff room. I turned away and heard him open his case. As I left, I peered through the glass wall and tried to see what he was laying out on the desk. A candle. A flask. A dark book. A little bell. Visitor numbers are back up. We're weathering the recession remarkably well. We've dropped some of the deluxe product and introduced a back-to-basic raw pine range. The store's actually taken on more staff recently than it's let go. The kids are happy again. Their obsession with the ballroom refuses to die. There's a little arrow outside it, a bit more than three feet off the ground, which is the maximum height you can be to come in. I've seen children come tearing up the stairs to get in and find out they've grown in the months since their last visit, that they're too big to come in and play. I've seen them raging that they'll never be allowed in again, that they've had their lot forever. You know they'd give anything at all right then to go back. And the other children watching them, those who were just a little bit smaller, well, they'd do anything to stop and stay as they are. Something in the way they play makes me think that Mr. Gainsbourg's intervention may not have had the exact effect everyone was hoping for. Seeing how eager they are to rejoin their friends in the ballroom, I wonder sometimes if it was intended to. To the children, the ballroom is the best place in the world. You can see that they think about it when they're not there, that they dream about it. If they ever got lost, it's the place they'd want to find their way back to, to play in the Wendy house and on the climbing frame and to fall all soft and safe on the plastic balls, to scoop them up over each other without hurting, to play in the ballroom forever, like in a fairy tale, alone or with a friend. And that was our story. Hope you enjoyed. And that's why I don't get drunk in the ball pit at Ikea anymore. Literally, the only reason. Ikea's dangerous enough sober, as is mixing whiskey and balls. All in all, it's a recipe for disaster. What's... What's going on? Norman Snarfintagolnerb. Come in to us in Blurtsnickel. Who's there? Who is that? Ikean Poltergeist Glorps Meg Duke Dagstorp. Poltergeist what? Glorps Smeg Dupe Dagstorp. Dagstorp? Dagstorp. What does that mean? Ottoman. Quickly, before the snarf and alfren waken. What, what are... There are arrows to guide the way. Okay, but where do the arrows... There are arrows to guide the way. I know, but where do the arrows take? Twerk in me pooper box. Twerking? I knew you guys must have started that. Twerk in me pooper box. 
twerk in skank Miley's eye. So many extremely flat brown boxes. Art Biden. And all these light fixtures. Fart Biden, Joe Biden bot. Fart Biden, Joe Biden bot. It's a, it's a doorway to infinity. Chad Kroger Ragnarok. Chad Kroger Ragnarok. Chad Kroger Ragnarok. Chad Kroger Ragnarok. Look at this photograph. Every time I do it makes me laugh. How did our eyes get so red? And what the hell is on Joey? Twerkin' me pooper box, indeed. Well, if you enjoyed this week's story, you know what to do. Throw a donation our way via the PayPal, credit, or debit card options off our website, drabblecast.org. It's easy and super awesome of you to do, because without your generous support, we can't pay authors and we can't keep the show going. And you might as well go ahead and say, Fart Biden to the Drabblecast. We greatly appreciate whatever you can give. All right, moving on to our 100-character story winner this week by Jared K. Anderson with this one here. Ghosts! yelled Steve, ashamed of his stutter. Steve! yelled the ghost. It was mean-spirited. Each week, of course, we run a 100-character story contest from our discussion forums. We call them Twabbles, and we pick a winner each week from the Twabble section there on our forums, post it out on our Twitter feed, and run it here on the show. Give it a shot. It's easy and fun. 100 characters, not counting spaces. You might be next week's winner. Follow the Drabblecast on Twitter, at the Drabblecast. All right, folks, that's our show this week. Remember, the Drabblecast is produced with a Creative Commons attribution non-commercial note derivatives license, which means don't change it, don't sell it, but feel free to share it all you like. If you have a minute, write us a review on iTunes, tell a friend, spread the weird. Special thanks to our episode artist this week, Greg Cravens. Greg lives, but he won't say where, with whom, nor how many darn pets might be involved. At 14, Greg's first comic strip ran in a local newspaper, which shut down after three weeks. At 17, he was a caricaturist at a theme park, which was then turned into a shopping mall. At 22, the university that awarded him a degree in graphic design promptly changed its name. Leaving this trail of destruction, Cravens decided to go into advertising, an industry that rightly deserved a good kneecapping, but was, alas, unable to destroy it. So he went back into comic strips. His two syndicated features are The Buckets and Hubris, links to which you can find in our show notes. Our program this week was brought to you by managing editor Nathan Lee, our art director Bo Kyer, with additional help from Nikki Drayden, Tom Baker, David Carvin, and David Steffen. We'll see you next week, weirdos. Until then, this is Norm Sherman reminding you to just watch out for the habit troll.